for, for three years, my wife and I were in Phoenix, Arizona, where she worked as a nurse in the Phoenix Indian Medical Center. A lot of the Navajo Indians from the Navajo window would be flown there. It was a very special uh, hospital. And uh, I had a privilege of meeting a number of the American Indians who would come to that hospital, had an opportunity to lead. My wife and I had an opportunity to lead one of them to Christ, had them into our home after he got out of the hospital. Um, and so we did see, and especially Meredith, since she worked there, had an opportunity to see a lot of fruit. And I'm, I'm prefacing this joke because a, 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 an American Indian had shared this with me, and so I just submit that to you. But he was, he, he, the story he said went something like this. He said, there was a gentleman who wanted to go on a hike in the Navajo window area, and so he chose an Indian guide, an American Indian guide, to help him. And so as they were in, in front of a store, the guy said, tell you what, to his uh, American Indian friend, stay here, I'm going to go inside. And uh, I got to get some supplies and I'll be right out. When the guy came out, there was the Navajo Indian with his ear to the ground like this. And the guy walked up to him and mesmerized. And, and he says, what's he saying? And he could hear him mumbling, four by four truck, KC lights, high rise, license plate, CJV16. Seven. And the guy looks down at him and says, that's amazing. How can you tell what's coming down the road miles away? And the guy looks up at him and says, coming down the road, nothing. Run over me five minutes ago. <laughs> so if you didn't like that, blame the guy that shared the joke with me. But honestly, having and understanding the right guide is very, very important to life itself. How many of you have ever used MapQuest? How many of you have used MapQuest in the past but have never used it anymore since? I'm raising my hand. I remember a time in which I was relying on MapQuest to get me to a particular location. It was so many years ago, people, I had forgotten where I was heading. And as I was going down this road, it said, keep going straight, and I came to a dead end. And I said, I can't keep going straight. What is wrong with this map? And then I looked across this large field, and there the road continued. And I'm thinking, I can't cross this field. I had to backtrack one to two miles, go around this neighborhood, onto the main road, come back, and then continue to follow the directions. And at that point, I was wondering, should I even trust MapQuest? So yeah, MapQuest is not always right. How many of you, and maybe I should say guys, but how many of you have been driving down the road, and someone in the back seat is saying, I know how to get there. And they proceeded to prove to you that they absolutely did not know how to get there. And you're more than halfway there, and they're saying, I thought we were supposed to turn right here, but apparently not. And at that point, you realize we are lost. And so you're on your phone, you're, you're using Google Maps, of course, not MapQuest, and et cetera, et cetera. And we need a right guide. We need to be able to trust someone to be able to navigate this course, whatever it is, wherever you're trying to get. But the truth is, as a nation, America today truly has veered off course. We have utilized this MapQuest. Sorry, I hope MapQuest doesn't try to sue me. But we've utilized this MapQuest or whatever, this poor guide, and we have veered off course as a nation. Uh, and its guide has not led us by truth, but by popular opinion. 
And we're on a collision course with liberalism in politics, liberalism in the pulpit, and liberalism in our own principles. The title of the sermon today is United You Stand, Divided You Fall. And I know that's a, that's a phrase, united we stand, divided we fall. But what I am suggesting to you is maybe in parentheses after the word united, put the words with Christ. United with Christ we stand, but divided from Christ we fall. And as a nation, we are in the process of separating ourselves from our heritage, that being the truth of the word of God. We have veered off course. And my question that we need to, to ask us today, church, is that are we willing to take a stand and stay the course so that we do not veer off course? And as we look at Joshua in Joshua chapter 22, I'm hoping that we're going to glean some conservative principles as far as the direction that we need to be taking as a nation. Now, I'm going to be reading several verses, but several verses I'm going to skip only because this is a long chapter. And I do want to reserve time for communion at the end. But I am going to be reading, and I'll let you know before I, I begin that next section where I'm at so you can follow me. But Joshua chapter 22, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half-tribe and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, now, excuse me, you remember that those two and a half tribes had already gotten their inheritance east of the Jordan River. They were challenged by Moses. They were challenged by Joshua. You must fight with your brother Israelites. You cannot just stay on the other side of the Jordan. You must fight with them. You must go to war with them to battle the Canaanites because this is your duty. So now they fulfilled their duty and Joshua is addressing them. And this is what he says to them. You have done all that Moses, your servant of the Lord commanded and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now to this very day, you have not deserted your brothers, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given your brothers rest as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave, gave you. To love the Lord your God, to walk in all your, his ways, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Skipping down to verse eight, he continued saying, return to your homes with your great wealth, with large herds of livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and great quantity of clothing, and divide with your brothers the plunder from your enemies. You may remember that a number of these two and a half tribes, the fighting men, stayed on the other side of the Jordan to help protect their families and the land that they had just taken over uh, from enemies, reprisals, etc. And so about 40,000, which is, I'm trying to remember the percentage, it's, it's less than half, but probably closer to a third of the actual fighting men that went with them, the others stayed to help protect and so now he is saying, with your great wealth, divide it with your brothers. Skipping over to verse 10 and through 12. When they came to Geliloth, 
near the Jordan. They were, excuse me, they were at Shiloh. They had set up the tabernacle in Shiloh. And if you were to go in the back of your Bibles to a map, you can find Shiloh. That's where they set up the tabernacle. They have actual, uh, Joshua has addressed the two and a half tribes there in Shiloh. They leave and they head somewhat due east, maybe southeast, and they're going to cross the Jordan into Gilead, and then they're going to separate and go to their respective homes from there. And they come to Geliloth, which is on the border of the Jordan River, but on the west side, so on the Israelite side, not the Gilead side, but on the Israel side of the Jordan. And this is where they are in the land of Canaan. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard, that is, the nine and a half tribes, heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gililoth near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. So they pursue them. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, goes with them and speaks to the two and a half tribes, and we pick it up in verse 17. Was not the sin of Peor, Peor enough for us? Go back to Numbers 20, I believe it's 24, um, in which they committed sexual immorality with the Moabites and started worshiping Baal of Peor. And God judged them severely for doing this. He says, was that sin of Peor enough for us? Was it not enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin. In other words, it's still haunting them. Even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. You remember Achan. He speaks about that in verse 20. Skipping down now to verse 24. The two and a half tribes respond to these charges. These grave concerns, very valid concerns of the nine and a half tribes, the Israelites. And this is their response. The two and a half tribes respond, no, we did not do it for fear that someday your descendants might, we did it, excuse me, let me start over. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, the Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. Specifically, it's not Adonai, but it's Yahweh here. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing Yahweh. That is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship Yahweh at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. Phineas, representing the nine and a half tribes, continues and, and responds in verse 31. 
And Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord, Yahweh, is with us because you have not acted unfaithfully towards the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. And in verse 34, And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that Yahweh is God. Now I want us to understand this is yet another memorial that is built. I believe that if we were to examine the book of Joshua, we would find seven of these memorials throughout these chapters. This is the, 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 the last one. It is an altar that is an exact replica of the one that they just had set up. It was built when they, you know, during the time of, of their wandering in Israel. It was built, and it was, as you may remember, a reflection of the altar in heaven. The tabernacle was to reflect that tabernacle or temple that was in heaven. And so God gave very clear instructions to make it just like this. And this altar had finally settled in Shiloh. That's where they set up the tabernacle, the altar right there in front of the tabernacle. And on that altar is where they, the priests would sacrifice these, these offerings. And it was, a, it, was, it was a large, large altar. I'm going to suggest that these nine and a half tribes of Israel were legitimately concerned that the two and a half tribes' action in building an altar, again, a replica of the one in Shiloh, was a statement that they were going to separate themselves and worship a different God or worship the Lord in however they wanted to at that altar. And God made it very clear to Moses. And, as, and I'm going to share this because many of us are thinking right now, I mean, come on, what's, what is the big deal? God very specifically said to Moses, and then he dispersed it, and he said, look, when the tabernacle is established, you cannot worship anywhere else. You cannot make sacrifices anywhere else. It must be done here. This is the way I am asking that you do it. Again, because, at least in part, the tabernacle was a reflection of that temple in heaven, and it had to be done a very specific way. God gave instructions, clear instructions, this is how I need you to worship me. Now, we may not understand all the implications of the whys and hows of worshiping God in this way. You can, you can look through what these articles in the, the tabernacle represent and such, and we will focus at the end on the altar. But I'm going to suggest to you that the nine and a half tribes were legitimately concerned that the Israel, that the two and a half tribes, as soon as they're done with their responsibilities and they're ready to cross the Jordan, they're going to separate themselves, perhaps create their own religion, and they had just fought for this land. And this would, this would allow sin to breed within Israel. And, and this was the very reason why God said to the, to the Jews, I, I need you to completely exterminate these, the Amorites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Hivites, etc., because they, are, they have been so filled with sin and they have allowed so much 
occultic practices in their lives to the point of sacrificing their own children. He says, I need to wipe out this entire culture. And now the nine and a half tribes are afraid. You know, all of this that we fought for and, and some of our brothers have died in these battles and now you are to the two and a half tribes and now you're going to separate yourselves and, and incur God's judgment upon the entire nation of Israel. Nothing doing. We are going to stand for the holiness of God. So I want us to realize that Phineas and those nine and a half tribes went to the two and a half tribes as they're about ready to cross over the Jordan for a legitimate reason. Their fear is that these two and a half tribes are going to become apostate. They're wanting to make a hard or they're needing to make a hard choice here. Go to war. With these two and a half tribes, they're your brothers. But we need to realize that there was so much at stake at this point in the, this birth of a nation in which they're finally receiving their inheritance. And almost as soon as the land is taken, they're going to fall apart. They're gonna, some of them are going to turn away from the Lord. They had to make a hard choice because this, this, was, this was what was guiding them. Purity at any price. And I'm going to suggest to you point number one today, don't be led astray by people's opinions. People's opinions might suggest to the nine and a half tribes, you know what, they're your brothers. Let's cut them some slack here. But they realize we can't do that. There is far too much at stake here. You remember the sin of Achan, and they lost a battle and several people died because of one man's sin and how that impacted the community. And now you're talking about the sin of an entire two and a half tribes veering off course. And so their response was purity, pursuing God at any, at any price. That was what drove them to the Jordan River to say, what are you guys doing? Because in all appearance, they were creating their own altar to set up their own place of worship rather than when God, rather than where God specifically said this, right here in Shiloh, this is where you're to worship me. And again, we may not understand the specifics and why God is so firm there, Shiloh, only Shiloh. That's where my name is going to be. And, and it's not just because of the reflection that it was at, of heaven, but God said that is where my presence is going to be. That is where I am going to be on the, on the mercy seat, on the, the, the cover of the ark of the Lord. That is where I'm going to be. That's why you worship me there. And my name will be on that place. And so I, I need us to realize that there's a lot at stake here. And we might step back and say, wow, would it really be loving and understanding to go to war with your brothers? Is that really love? And I'm going to suggest to us, church, that there are times in which as Christians, as followers of the Lord, when someone is veering off course, that we take strong action. And I'm not saying that you kill them. You're not saying you go to war with them. But in America, we need to take a, st a strong stand so that we do not veer off course. Sometimes we wrestle with this because we still don't understand what love truly is. America is embracing this concept of tolerance. Tolerance is not necessarily love. 
We tolerate all of the religions, all of the beliefs, and oh, that's okay. You know, we tolerate, you know, I, I don't want to impose my views on other people. I don't want to impose my morals on other people. So I'm not going to say you shouldn't abort babies. There are plenty of people in America who, who do believe that abortion is wrong, but they, but they vote for abortion because of that very same thing, because they're afraid. Why, who am I to impose my morals on someone else? Well, if, if morals are simply the conglomeration of your opinions, yeah, you probably shouldn't. But if your morals are rooted in something that's eternal and absolute, yes, you should. And so as America's veering off course, you know, we need to call it back to staying on course with the truth. Now I want us to look at things from the other side. I want, you to, I want us to see from the other perspective the two and a half tribes and what they were doing. For them, the action of building an altar they realized could be misunderstood and actually could be offensive. They had to make a hard choice. And it was this, the pursuit of God at any price. The one side, it was purity at any price, and the other, it was the pursuit of God at any price. But they had to come to this conclusion, regardless of people's opinions, regardless of how others are going to view me, we need to make this decision. Even if they misunderstand me, we're going to make this decision. And in all honesty, I think personally, we... We are more concerned about how people perceive us than we are of how people perceive Christ. Are we afraid to offend with the truth? Now, I realize I need to get into this concept of the altar, and I'm going to do that in a moment. What guides you? What guides your words and your actions? Because we have two people, two camps here, the nine and a half tribes and the two and a half tribes. And what each, each of them did, the course of action that they each took was right. And they were seeking to stand for truth. And yet, many times, I think what keeps us from standing for truth is the fear of what other people, how they will perceive us of what other people's opinions are. And so when it comes to America veering off course, we're afraid to stand up and speak out what is true because we're, we're afraid that we're going to get stoned politically. We're afraid we're going to get stoned in the marketplace. We're afraid we're, you know, our neighbors are going to turn their backs on us. We're afraid of what people are going to think about us. Well, I don't want to take that strong of a stand. And my question is, why not? Why are we afraid to take these bold, daring stands? Because until we do, church, then not only the church of Jesus will continue to veer off course, but the entire nation will follow. We must take a stand. We must be willing to speak truth regardless of its consequences. Here's my, here's my question for you. In a classroom setting or maybe an office discussion on the topic of, let's say, the, the topic of the tolerance of religion and, and which religion is right. Are they all right? Are we willing to interject truth 
Because this is a hard subject. Christians are, are said to be intolerant. Why? Because of things like this in John 14, 6, it's Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Not by Buddha, not by Hare Krishna or Vishnu, not by Muhammad, not by anyone, but only Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, it says salvation. And this is Peter declaring boldly before the Sanhedrin that 70 Jewish elders who were leading the, the nation of Israel, and they are now being charged with spreading these occult, or excuse me, spreading these cultic ideas, follow Jesus. Well, they just crucified Jesus because he was really, so they thought, really out there, claimed to be the Messiah and the Son of God. And so we're crucifying him because we need to stamp out this heresy that he's beginning to promote amongst the nation of Israel. And now these followers of his are going to do the same. We're going to need to kill them too. And so Peter is bold here. He understands what's on the line. He doesn't back down. He doesn't apologize. As a matter of fact, he eventually ends up saying, you know what, it, it is better for us to obey God than to obey you. But he says this in Acts 4.12. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Church, we need to just simply let truth offend. I'm not suggesting that you offend. That, that many times is the problem because of how, you know, in, in 2 Timothy 2.25, it says that the servant of the Lord gently instructs. And sometimes we're so filled with pride or we get our pride pricked that we come back and we're harsh, we're not loving. Scripture says in, in Ephesians 4.12, it says, speak the truth in love. Or, or 4.15, speak the truth in love. But be adamant, be clear, be willing to take a stand because the, the problem for why America is veering off of course is because we have refused to take that stand. And we have been led astray. So the first thing that we need to realize, number one, don't be led astray by people's opinions, specifically people's opinions of you. Neither of those two, the nine and a half and the two, they weren't concerned about how, the, how others were going to view them. They realized they need to, needed to take a daring stand. They worked it out and they understood the problem. And here's what I want to get at right now. It does say that this was a replica, down there in verse 28, of the Lord's altar. The nine and a half tribes were concerned that they were going to be making sacrifices on this altar. The truth of the matter, though, was that they were going to simply use this altar as a memorial, as a witness, so that every time the Jews would come to the Jordan, they would never think this river demarcates the east and the west, and that those who are living on the west side of the Jordan, this is real, true Israel. I, I, they wouldn't be wrong on that. The land that was given to Abraham did not include that area, but God did end up giving it to them anyway. 
it included that place on the west side of the Jordan River. So they could come to the Jordan River and they could say, you know what, you two and a half tribes, uh, you are not part of Israel. You have not received the real inheritance of the Lord. And so the fear would be that they would come and that they would say, you have no inheritance with us in the Lord. And they would reject them. You cannot follow the Lord. And so the second point here is if we're going to keep from veering off course, not only do we not have to cater to people's opinions, but we have to be able to look ahead. And that's what these two and a half tribes were doing. They're trying to look ahead. They're trying to, in the future, what could happen here? And the Jordan River is a natural barrier that would, that would cause them to think, you know what? They don't have anything to do with us. Here is a reality check. You look 350 years down the road and the nation of Israel did get divided. It did get divided so that some did say, you do not have an inheritance in the Lord. But it was not because of the, the natural barrier of the Jordan River. You know where the barrier was? It was just north of Jerusalem. In the days of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, he had just taken the throne. He had just been coronated. And the, the tribes in the north came to him and said, you know what? We are, we're needing to ask you to lighten our tax burden. We're needing you to. And they listed some of the complaints that Solomon, who was so in this building program, and, and Solomon did some wonderful things to bring peace in Israel, but he said, it's too heavy for us. Lower the taxes. Stop making all of our sons serve to, to labor in your army and in your building program. And you name it. Uh, just let us have more freedom. And so Rehoboam said, nothing doing. I am not going to relax the tax burden. I am not going to cater to your whims. I'm going to stand firm on this. And so the the 10 tribes separated themselves just north of Israel. And if you were to look at a map that separates the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom, it is not by the Jordan River. It is by this line, and it cuts straight through Benjamin. It cuts straight through Dan, and it is just north of Jerusalem. Division did come. The the two and a half tribes were wise. They looked ahead and there was concern and so they took steps of action. And what we do see though is that the northern kingdom created this division and they basically said, we are not going to serve the Lord the way you do. Now here's what they did. This is how they, they decided to solve this problem politically. They made this line. There were many in Judah, specifically of the tribe of Simeon, that said, I don't want to be in the southern kingdom. I'm going to follow the rest of the nation. And they migrated out from their inheritance and moved into the northern kingdom. That's what happened to the tribe of Simeon. But Jeroboam took the kingship in the northern kingdom from Rehoboam. He separated the nation Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel from the kingdom of Judah. 
and he set up two places of worship. He set up one in Bethel, which is just north of the line of division, and one all the way up in Dan in the northern portion of the kingdom. And here's what they said. Oh, we're going to worship Yahweh. We're just going to do it in a different way. We're going to create these golden calves, one here in Bethel and one in Dan, and we're going to worship Yahweh in our own way. And God sent prophets to them and said, you cannot do this because you are going to be worshiping other gods. This is serious. Now, if you were to search through scriptures, you would realize that when people worship idols, regardless of the name that they apply to this idol, that for, for the northern kingdom, it was Yahweh. How ridiculous is this? Uh, he said, you are really worshiping demons. And so when you, in, when you engage in idolatry, you are moving into the occult. You are moving into the realm of Satan that is powerful and you are unleashing the powers of the enemy. Now that is not clearly spelled out in the Old Testament, though you do see, uh, you do see uh, certain verses that capture the essence that you are worshiping demons when you do this. But they were just going to take a little step away and they're going to worship God their own way. And what this did is now it opened the door to idolatry so that 65, 70 years later, under the reign of Ahab, he marries Jezebel, who's the daughter of the king of, of uh, Sidon, and he worships Baal. And so when she comes into the palace, she brings the worship of Asherah, the worship of Baal, and it becomes totally occultic. And the nation of Israel has completely apostatized. In America, step by step, we are veering off course. For the northern kingdom, they redefined worship. They redefined what idolatry was. They redefined so many things to excuse what they were doing as they were moving further and further away. That is no different than what's happening in America today. We are redefining what, who God is. God is just that God. He's the God of all religions. He's the God of Islam. He's the God of Christianity. He's the God of, Bo of, of Buddhism. That was supposed to be a joke. Buddhism's atheist. Uh, we're, the, we're the God of all of these religions. And they redefine who God is. Now, if I read my Bible, the Bible defines for me who God is and that he sent his one and only son. He wasn't the 33rd incarnation of Vishnu. He, 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 was, he was the only begotten son of God who is the only way. And, and, and people, this is a truth that we are, as, as a nation, we are trying to discard and sweep under the carpet because it is offensive. It's exclusive. It, it, it comes across, we are not tolerant of other religions. We have redefined truth. I've heard people tell me, there's just many truths. You have your truth, I have my truth, and as long as we're sincere about truth, that's all that matters. And that's, uh, hang on a second. So if you're telling me that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, and that is a truth, but you say, no, 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 there are many ways to salvation, which one is right? 
You cannot say that they are both right. They're mutually exclusive. And yet it's just brain cloud has come over America in which we tolerate all of these inconsistencies that are, are totally affronts to the truth that we read in God's word. And we need to call people back to the one truth that we see in the word of God. Jesus Christ is the only way. And, and again, let me go back. It is truth that should offend. Not me, not my personality, not how I speak it. I should gently instruct. And so many times, because of fear of people, we back down. We let them have their say. We remain quiet. And we continue to allow America to veer off course. The present administration's goal is to confine Christianity within the four walls of its churches. Its goal is to keep Christianity out of the marketplace, certainly out of government. Its goal is to contain Christianity in the churches, and it will eventually, and some have actually been arrested, been released, but for reading the Bible on street corners. Reading the Bible on street corners. Why would the present administration, why would America, why would we want to see someone like that arrested? Because you're doing it outside the four walls of your church and you're imposing your views on me and I don't want to hear it. And so what they're, gonna, what they're doing more and more is their, their goal is to contain Christianity. If you were to look at China right now, they would say, we're not opposed to Christianity in any way. We welcome it. Do you, did you realize that? Even though they persecute Christians, we welcome Christianity. All you have to do is sign the, the state list of the churches. But do you know why they do that? So that they can control the churches. If they know who you are and where you live and what church you're a part of, they can control the churches. And if the state can control the churches, then they control Christianity. And there are, there are millions of believers who have established churches throughout China, and they absolutely refuse to allow Pharaoh to be their slave, to the government to dictate to the church what they should do. So they don't sign the list. They go underground, and now they're illegal. In America, we are moving in that direction. How about this? Have you ever heard someone say, uh, I don't have to read my Bible, pray, or go to church to be a Christian? Have you ever heard someone say that? Don't judge me. You know, don't, don't challenge me that as a Christian, I need to do this. But the Bible says don't forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. And, and many Christians, and we go door to door, and there are many who claim to be Christians that never darkened the door of a church in years. And so I, I'm maybe by darkening the door by, no, I'm not going to go there. But I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Can I just say to them that they're absolutely right? You can write that down and you can quote me. You do not have to go to church to be a Christian. But can I also add that an apple tree does not have to produce apples to be an apple tree? 
Did you follow that? An apple tree does not have to produce apples to be an apple tree. That is not what makes it an apple tree. The key, though, is the seed that's planted. You see, it's the seed that makes the tree an apple tree or a grapefruit tree or a peach tree. It's the seed. But can I ask you this in all honesty? What would you do? What would you do if you had an apple tree in the back of your yard and it did not produce apples? What would you do? Oh, that's okay. It doesn't have to produce apples. I, how? Why should I cut this tree down just because it's not producing apples? Now, you might think that about your neighbor's apple tree, but not your apple tree. If it's not going to produce apples, I want to do something about this apple tree. Something's wrong, and I'm going to suggest to you one of two things is wrong with your apple tree if it's not producing apples. Number one, guess what? Maybe, just maybe, you didn't plant an apple seed. Maybe, just maybe, you planted a grapefruit seed or something that looked like an apple seed, but it was not an apple seed, and guess what? That's why... There are no apples on your apple tree. And so what I have to ask, why does someone not want to go to church? Why is there no hunger in someone's heart to read the word of God, to pray? Why, why, do, they, why do they want to give this? I don't have to go to church. I don't have to read the Bible to, to, uh, to be a Christian. I love to just go out in nature. That's where I connect with God. But if you're a, an apple tree owner and your apple tree is not producing apples... Wouldn't you think that there's a problem there? You would have to at least consider that if you see oranges on your apple tree, that maybe you did not plant the right seed. That in part is the problem in America. Now, can I be honest with you? There are many who, when their apple tree does not produce apples, would just say, ah, let's just leave it alone. In the course of time, let's wait. You know, it might produce apples one of these years. And again, you might say that about your neighbor's apple tree, but not yours. You want apples from your apple tree. God wants apples from his apple tree. And so as we're asking this question, why is it not producing apples? It's fair to ask, maybe I did not plant the right seed, did it? Is that true? The other is, you know what, if the, if the apple seed was planted, is there something seriously wrong with the tree? Maybe it has a blight. Maybe it, it lacks water. Maybe you haven't been fertilizing it correctly. Maybe there are strictures, and you remember our orange tree. I had two strictures, two ribbons that I failed to cut. And as the tree grew to its third year, and, and the branches were now twice as thick, one of this, a whole side of the orange tree was starting to die. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? And as I looked at it very closely, I realized that there were two ribbons that had that ha tags that used to hang that didn't anymore. Those, those, there were stretchers. There were, there were ribbons tied tightly. And so that the tree that was originally this big and was now twice or, bit, twice or more bigger, I needed to cut that ribbon. Because not enough, what do they call it, phloem that's in a tree was being able to get to the branches. And so the leaves were dying. There was absolutely no fruit on half of the tree. 
because two of these branches, major branches, had strictures. And so I had to go into my garage, pulled out my utility knife, and I was running, man, I hope this works. Because if it doesn't work, I'm going to kill my tree. And I pulled out that blade, and I cut very deeply into each of the branches over and over and over until it caught that ribbon and cut the ribbon. And now, with the ribbon cut, the stricture gone, the branch could grow bigger and bigger and allow the flow of nutrients from the roots through the trunk to the leaves and create fruit. Maybe there's strictures in our apple tree. We forgot to cut that ribbon. Maybe we have failed to fertilize. Maybe we planted it in rocky ground. Maybe, just maybe, it's like my other tree. That apple, orange tree is in my backyard. In the front tree, I have a live oak. Now, if you've ever been to my house, on the side of my house, we have this huge living oak tree that towers way above the roof of our house. And I have to cut it back constantly every year so that, you know, during storms it doesn't hit my house over and over. On the front yard, we have this really dinky tree. It's about eight feet, the tallest. They were planted the same year. The tree in my front yard it looks like it's probably at a 60-degree angle. And I, I haven't gotten around to it, but the honest truth is I need to just pull that thing up. Because apparently, I don't know what they did, but apparently maybe they, they wrapped the ball of roots twice in burlap, and the roots could not grow out of it, and so the roots did not go deep. Can I ask you this? What is the problem? And I'm not talking about out there and... People who say, well, I don't have to read my Bible to be a Christian. Okay, granted. But why wouldn't you? And so I want to ask you, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to pursue Christ with everything in you? Why are your wheels spinning? Why is there a dryness in your walk with Christ? I'm not saying it's because you're not a Christian. I mean, I suppose that's possible. You could have planted the wrong seed, but I, I want to go a little bit deeper. Those of you who know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, why? Why is there that dryness? Why is it that there's little to no fruit hanging from your nose? Could it not be that you have allowed sin into your life and it's just beginning to smother the, the nutrients that God is trying to get into you. Have you been running with the wrong crowd? Have you been listening to the wrong voices? You know, sometimes church, it just requires us to take a stand. I am going to pursue Christ no matter whether I want it, whether I wake up in the morning and feel like it or not. I've heard it said, wow, you know what? If I went to work every day that I felt good, I would probably never go to work. You know, it, it, I don't wake up in the morning and say, well, do I feel like going to work or do I not? I go to work regardless. And, and I pastor you as a church, and so I'm, I'm sure you're happy about that. But the truth is, some of you, you work jobs. If you were to make, if, if that's how you, if that was, the, if that was the question you asked yourself every morning and didn't go to church in the days you didn't feel good, you get fired, would you not? And yet, that's, that's how we walk out this Christian life. Do I do I really feel like following the Lord today? I mean, you know, I'm kind of discouraged. I, I don't think I'm going to read the word. And, and I'm just going to jump into my work here. I'm just going to go into my work and, and, and just go about my day. And, 
And before you know it, there's, there's just this dryness that begins to seep in, and we've allowed our emotions to lead us. And I, and, and, and I really challenge the guys, you know, guys especially, let's realize just in discipleship with, with men on men, guys, we lead our emotions, and we do not let our emotions lead us. And if you want to be a leader, that has got to be a guiding principle. I am not going to be led by my emotions. I lead my emotions. You want to be a great dad? You want to be a great husband? You know, I've seen Zach, you know, when, when his, I can tell that his patience has just been thinned out. And yet he, he tries so hard not to get frustrated or yell uh, because he realizes that is going to work against his training of his child and loving and serving his wife. And so he says, in essence, he says, I am not going to let my emotions lead me, but I will lead my emotions. And so I just want to, you know, if there is a problem with the apple tree and it's not producing apples, church, maybe we need to find out why that's the case. Rather than just simply saying, hey, you know what, I don't have to read my Bible to be a Christian. I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Now, I'm mentioning this. Can I just ask, how many of you have ever heard someone say that before? The vast majority of us. And I'm not going to ask the follow-up question, how many of you have ever given that as an answer? You know, I'm not going to ask that question. But the truth is, this is the America that we live in. Don't judge me. Tolerate my sin. Tolerate my rebellion against God. Tolerate my whacked-out views. I'm in left field. But no, we need to call people to the Scriptures, to the Word of God, to God's truth. Houston, we have a problem. We have veered off course. Guess what? Take corrective measures now before it's too late. How many of you ever watched Rocket Man before? Disney's movies, Disney movies. Okay, I, I love that movie, okay? I, I, I'll be honest with you. It's a silly movie with um, Fred Randall is the guy's name. Well, in the very beginning, as the movie starts out, these guys are in the spaceship, and there's a little chart, and, and the they're supposed to be trying to land this thing, and all of a sudden you, you see where how it's, the ship is supposed to go, and it starts going off course. And the guy is punching in the computer engineers, punching in the, the formula, and he can't stop it from going off course, and it crash lands. And then, of course, they step out of the capsule. You find out it's a simulator. And they, you know, what is the problem? They're saying to the computer engineer, this thing's constantly crashing. You guys, you've got to get it right. They're supposed to be going to Mars, and you can't crash on Mars. So they said, well, I keep pressing, putting in the right computer formula, and it keeps crashing. So they said, we're going to go to the designer of that program. So they go to Fred Randall. And Fred Randall is just this crazy, weird-out guy, right? And, uh, and they go with the Fred, and they said, Fred, you know, we keep punching in the right formula, and uh, our module keeps crashing. You're the one who made the program, so get it right. And Fred says, well, I did it right. So he has this little simulator in front of him of, 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 a, mod, of a spaceship landing, okay? So he sits down at his computer, and he's you know, a little funny scene there, and he's punching it in, and steps, he puts in the right formula, and it, it goes around, and then it, it lands properly. So the guy who's the computer program uh, engineer for the spaceship says, okay, okay, get out of the seat. Let me do this. So he sits down there. He punches, punches in his computer uh, pro, uh, program uh, formula, and the thing starts winding around, and it goes faster and faster, and then clobbers him in the face. And, of course, if you've seen the movie, he can't go to Mars, and Fred Randall takes his place. But the truth is, 
The problem that they discovered is the computer engineer was punching in the wrong formula, the wrong, he, he was punching in the wrong numbers for the, for the program. There's only one formula that works, church. They don't all work. It takes only one truth, that truth, that formula of what God has written, that is what we are led by. So I'm going to ask you, what computer equation are you using? The wrong one will not just cause you to veer off course, it will cause you to eventually crash and burn. That's what happened in the northern kingdom. Oh, we got this. We're going to worship God our own little way. And before you know it, they're way off into the occult. They're in total apostasy and rebellion against God. And God says, you refuse to listen to my prophets and off to captivity you will go. And for those 10 tribes, we've never heard of them since. God was a little bit more gracious with the two tribes in Judah. They eventually did come back. And my question is, what are we doing about this? America is veering off course. Maybe for some of you, personally, you're veering off course. And I'm going to conclude with this one last point. I'm going to make it short because of time. But I want to call you back to what they actually built on that Jordan River bank. They built an altar. The altar in the tabernacle of the Lord represented that place where the sacrifice was made. And the purpose of that sacrifice was for the cleansing of sin. As we move into the New Testament, the altar that our Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed himself on was the cross. So if there is going to be an emblem, if there's going to be a sign that we should follow, it would be this, the cross. My last point is this, follow the right sign. They built an altar. We have the cross as our sign. That is the altar in which Christ was sacrificed, in which we have been invited to do the same and sacrifice self. God's altar of atonement is the cross. It is our memorial. It is our witness today. And I'm just going to say these things very quickly. The cross is powerful. Only it brings life and salvation. This is what we look to. This is what is our, our, our beacon of hope. This is our emblem that we lift up to this nation. It is the cross and it is is none other. The cross is powerful and only it brings life and salvation. The cross is exclusive. Only Jesus can save. The cross is inclusive. It says, Jesus says, come all who may and believe in Jesus. Surrender to him and only to him. Number four, the cross is our life. 1 John 5, 11 and 12 says this, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. And number five, the cross, it's not only our life, the cross is our death. To receive this life, church, we must die. The cross was Jesus' altar. The cross is our altar. It is the right sign. And I challenge you, church, follow that. Our nation is going to redefine truth. It's going to redefine the cross. As a people, 
we must continually call them and ourselves and one another the cross of Jesus and only the cross of Jesus is what I am willing to follow. Jesus himself, that is who I follow. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. It is only him. He had to die. He had to die for our sins. He had to take my place so that I might live. He had to take your place. And because of this, in view of God's mercies, we offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice. Church, what are we doing right now with America veering off course? We must take our stand. We cannot be cowards. We must speak. We must be bold. We must live for Christ. We must follow him and refuse to compromise, refuse to redefine scripture and, and God himself and truth itself the way we want. We take a stand for him and only him. Can you stand with me? We're going to have communion right now. Communion is, at, the, at its very heart, about the cross. Communion is our communion, yes, with one another, but most significantly with Christ himself. He is the one who laid himself down on that altar, the cross. He is the one who made life possible for us, for you and me. And as we partake of this, our goal is to pursue him. Our goal is to pursue him and only him and sacrifice everything for his cause. And so, Jesus, I want to thank you for everything that you have done for us. Jesus, you were willing to lay it all down. You counted the cost. You gave it all for us. God, far be it from us that we would withhold anything from you. Far be it from us that we should be afraid of what others will think of us. God, I pray, help me. Please, God, to be bold. To care more for Christ and his reputation than mine.